You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Chair Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and a Dutch historian specializing in modern China. Prior to this, he was a professor of the modern history of China at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He is the author of a dozen books that have changed the way we look at history of modern China and the winner of the prestigious BBC Samuel Johnson Prize. His latest book is titled China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Frank Decoder. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background, as well as how you got into studying modern Chinese history. Um, well, I think you uh, already introduced me uh, in a very uh, kind way. Um, I'm a historian, and um, I am interested in China as a mere coincidence when I was an undergraduate student in Switzerland. I um, thought that the world was a rather large, big place, and I lived in fear of ignorance. I still do. So I thought that I should study something far away from Europe <laughs> and gain a very different perspective. So I picked China because at the time it was very closed and there were scholarships to go there. So I was one of the very few to end up in the PRC, uh, Nankai University, Tianjin in 1985. Um, and then, of course, it was a matter of deciding what it is that I wanted to study in China. Would it be literature, economics, or political science? I opted for history for a very simple reason. Um, it occurred to me that very much like the Soviet Union at the time, it was very difficult to study in a one-party state when you do not have access to good information. When all you read in the newspapers in the People's Republic of China is, of course, uh, states-sponsored um, propaganda. So I picked history um, with the idea that one should study the country before 1949, before the communist takeover, when there was a wealth of material available in libraries and archives around the world, including, of course, in China. Okay, so before we get into your, your latest book, which covers the post-Mao period, I think it would be useful to sort of spend a few minutes talking about the, the period that preceded this from the Civil War onward, to just introduce our audience who perhaps aren't as familiar with Chinese history to the background. So could you give us a, a brief overview of China under Mao from, say, the, the Communist Revolution, the siege of Chengchun, the Greatly Forward Cultural Revolution, just, just some of these key milestones so we can get a sense of what China was like and what it had undergone by the time of Mao's death? Well, it's it's obviously a very difficult thing to have to summarize, well, more than half a century, if, if that's what we're talking about, in, in a few minutes. Um, in particular, when it comes to readers who may not have much of a grasp of the history of modern China. Um, so let me start this with a rhetorical question, where should we really start when it comes to the history of the People's Republic of China? 
you know, the red flag goes up over the Forbidden City in 1949. Chairman Mao proclaims uh, the People's Republic after a civil war, as, as you noted, that starts uh, with the end at the end of the Second World War, 1945. Um, where should we start? I think you have a reasonably straightforward option. I think most people would probably believe that China is a tradition, a culture, a civilization, some, something much bigger. So we we would have to go back all the way to the Tang Dynasty or the Song or the Ming, you know, thousands of years of history. That's one option. And I think it's the option that every uh, party official would want you to take. The other one is to realize that when it comes to the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party of China, it is actually a communist party, as the title says. Though you really ought to go back not to the 10th century or 18th or 19th, we should go back to 1917, when Lenin and the Bolsheviks uh, seized power in Russia and established the Soviet Union. Now, what is it that Lenin proposed through his seizure of power? He proposed a vision in which the revolution would be guided from above by a devoted communist party. In other words, Lenin was a Marxist, but he didn't want to wait for some spontaneous revolution to happen. He wanted to organize it and direct it from above and establish a one party state. In other words, a monopoly over power. That's the key Leninist principle, and it inspires other revolutionaries. Uh, you may not think of Mussolini as a revolutionary, but he was, and he uh, appeals directly to um, Lenin in his march on Rome in 1922. Same with Adolf Hitler, 1933, Kim Il-sung, 1945. A whole bunch of revolutionaries throughout the 20th century appealed to the Leninist principle of a monopoly over power to seize it and carry out the revolution. That is what happens in 1949. Now, what does a monopoly over power mean? It means that you do not have a separation of powers. You eliminate all opposition parties. You eliminate freedom of movement, freedom of press. You make sure that there is no organization outside of the organization of the Communist Party that is allowed to exist. And that is precisely what happens after 1949. Over a number of years, very gradually, religious organizations, charitable bodies, study societies, civil associations are either um, closed down or brought to heel and incorporated control within the Communist Party it, itself. And a great deal of, of it, of course, at, 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 at a certain human cost. So by 1953, 54, 55, there really is nothing left in terms of independent organizations, independent from the government. Independent courts are replaced by people's tribunals. Independent chambers of commerce are incorporated, incorporated within an organization controlled by Beijing. What is the second thing that happens? A Leninist one-party state also has a particular view of the economy. It's a Marxist economy. Now, what is a Marxist economy? It means that the state should have control over the means of production. What are the means of production? The means of production, as defined by a Marxist approach, uh, is pretty much anything that goes into production. That means the land. That means capital. That means labor. That means energy. 
Um, that means a whole number of things, including raw materials. All of this must be controlled by the state so that the state can determine who should produce what, when, where, and for how much. From 1949, this is the second aspect that unfolds, not just an elimination of civil society, uh, a monopoly over power that is uh, concentrated increasingly, but also a seizure of the means of production. In other words, you take the land from the farmers, the bank from the bankers, the banks from the bankers. You, you take small shops from shopkeepers or massive industries from powerful industrialists. By 1955-56, as a result, um, trade and industry have become functions of the state. In other words, whether you are that banker or that shopkeeper, you are now a state uh, employee. It is the same in the countryside. By 1955-56, the farmers have lost control over their crops, their harvest, lost control over their land, which has been collectivized, lost control even over their own schedules in the sense that a party member will direct them uh, into the tasks that they have to accomplish. In other words, even in the countryside, in effect, villages have become state employees. So that really is the key point, that transformation from 49 to 55 of China into a one-party state with, on the one hand, a Marxist insistence on control over the means of production, and on the other hand, the Leninist principle of a monopoly over power. Why does this matter? Because we frequently lose sight that these two principles are not only inscribed into the constitution, but continue to guide the party to this very day. You cannot understand the PLC without understanding these very simple facts. That brings us up to 1955-56. You want me to continue? Well, 1958. Great leap forwards. What does it mean? It means that while the countryside is already collectivized, Mao Zedong thinks that he, he can have a great leap forward from socialism into communism by herding the villages into even bigger collectives called the people's communes, where everything is collectivized. Children sent to collective kindergartens, uh, farmers uh, sleep in massive dormitories, food distributed by the spoonful in canteens. Everything is collectivized. The idea is if you transform every man, every woman in the countryside into a foot soldier, into in a, in a giant army, you can deploy that army of workers and transform the economy within a year or two. That, that's the vision of the Great Leap Forward. Every man, every woman, a soldier in an army that works day and night, of course, the result is the exact opposite, a, a catastrophe, as quite literally tens of millions of ordinary people are starved, beaten, neglected to death. In the fact, China becomes a massive work camp where all incentives to work have been stripped, where you get work points for carrying out work. Well, it was a massive catastrophe. And the result besides, of course, the, the massive destruction of human life, fabric of society, is that by 1962, as the, experiment, as the experiment comes to an end, as Mao is forced to somehow backtrack and stop the Great Leap Forward, um, his 
standing among his colleagues is at a very low point. In other words, his star is at its lowest. And Mao now fears that what happened to Stalin might happen to him. What happened to Stalin? 1953, Stalin dies in Moscow. 1956, his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, denounces him in a speech, secret speech, uh, that starts de-Stalinization. Stalin's body is quite literally dragged out of this mausoleum on Red Square. Mao fears that the same thing might happen to him. Somebody might denounce him for having caused a massive catastrophe with the Great Leap Forward. Somebody might accuse him of being responsible for the death of tens of millions. So he wonders how he can prevent this from happening. His answer is the Cultural Revolution. It takes him several years to prepare it. It is launched in 1966. What is the Cultural Revolution? On the surface, ideologically, so to speak, the purpose of the Cultural Revolution is to make sure that all remnants of bourgeois capitalist thought culture, in other words, uh, are eliminated in favor of proletarian culture. That's the idea. Safeguards uh, communist ideology by making sure that anything opposed to it is eliminated. All remnants of the past. Now, that's the ideological justification. But of course, Mao also uses the opportunity to ferret out his enemies, whether they are real or imagined. So something happens here that has not been seen and will never be seen again in a one-party state. Chairman Mao allows ordinary people to take to task party members. Could you imagine that? Wouldn't happen under Stalin. Didn't happen anywhere that a leader allows ordinary people to attack the very instrument that brought him to power, which is the party. Well, 1966 in the summer, it starts with students who are allowed to criticize uh, their teachers, trying to find out which one of these teachers might harbor thoughts which are critical of communism and, of course, of Mao Zedong himself. Very gradually, um, this the, the number of people who can stand up and criticize the party is expanded by the winter of 1966-67. Ordinary people can put up posters to denounce anyone in power all the way up to Peking. Even a powerful minister can be taken to task. In, in, in other words, Mao calls this bombard the headquarters. In other words, ordinary people um, start criticizing party members. It leads to the downfall of a great number of prominent party members, including, of course, number two, Liu Shaoqi, and a man we all remember, uh, namely Deng Xiaoping. All of them uh, end up either in prison or criticized or under house arrest or, or purged in one way or another. This is Mao's way of making sure that no one in the party ranks uh, remains standing if he or she has even an inkling of criticism towards him. It is a disaster that unfolds, of course, from 1966 until the army is brought in, in a, in, in a nutshell, 66, 68. Mao uses the people to purge the party. From 68 to 71, he uses the army to purge the people, the very people who spoke up. 
against this party member or against that powerful minister in Beijing or against a local car that was corrupt. Uh, these people are now punished in turn, in turn, millions of them sent to the countryside to be re-educated by the peasants, quote unquote. But of course, Mao also fears the clout that the army uh, accumulates during these years. And in 1971, purges the army in turn. Now, from 71 onwards, it becomes very interesting because, of course, the party has been purged. The army has returned to the barracks. Soldiers are no longer there. And a great many people, in particular in the countryside, realize that there's no one there to keep an eye on them. There are, of course, party members. But in the countryside in particular, they too are very upset by what happened during the Cultural Revolution. They are fed up with one campaign after another. They are fed up with years of economic chaos, and they quietly allow the farmers to just get on with it. This is what I call the silent revolution. From 71 onwards, very gradually, millions upon millions of ordinary people in the countryside realize that the Cultural Revolution has undermined the very organization of the Communist Party. And they use the opportunity to take back very quietly on the sly, to take back their own tools from the people's communes. They take back uh, the land and divide it among themselves. They start operating underground factories. Uh, they trade in black markets. In other words, they return to a more traditional open economy. But of course, they do it quietly. So by the time that Chairman Mao dies in 1976, large chunks of the countryside have, in effect, already started decollectivization. So this is probably where you want to ask me the next question, which is about Deng Xiaoping. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just hearing you talk about some of these things um, from, a, from a historical perspective, I think there is there's a lot of, you know, I, I think, for example, the purges, you know, as if anyone's read read history, then you know that that has all the overtones of say the the French Revolution with the Jacobin faction under Robespierre. Uh, you know, even even Stalinist Russia, all, all of the same same you know purging, turning one one faction against another, um, trying to eliminate any any enemies of the revolution. All all those kinds of things I think are are common themes throughout throughout history. Um, and so that that sort of brings us under this this very cynical. Um, nation which has undergone all this trauma after the death of Mao um, to a new leader, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who who takes power. Uh, and, and I think he backs away from sort of the strict isolation under Mao. He creates special economic zones. He allows foreign direct investment. All in all, I, I think he appears to, to purport this ideology of a more economically pragmatic China. Um, however, by the time he, he retires in 1992, um, China's GDP per capita is, is still only about 360 uh, U.S. dollars in, in today's dollars, which is it, it's it's practically a rounding error compared to the jump in the two decades after um, Deng Xiaoping's rule. Um, so, can you tell us a bit about this, say, um, initial post Mao period? What really changed, and and what remained the same under Deng? Well, it, of course, I can. It, also complicated. How do you summarize a good fifteen years in 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 about four or five minutes? What you have to realize is that when Deng Xiaoping comes to power a few years after the death of Mao, 78, 79, um, 
the countryside has already um, begun to undermine people's collectives. As I said, a great many ordinary farmers have already turned their backs against the collectivized economy. But what Deng Xiaoping does in 1979 is the exact opposite. He insists that the collectivized economy is the backbone of agriculture. Um, in order to save the people's communes, he comes up with a new idea, uh, namely a contract system. Well, this is how it's supposed to work on paper. The state gives the people's communes a contract, and if the people's communes are able to um, fulfill, but also overfulfill these targets, they can retain and dispose of any surplus as they see fit. This is supposed to create an incentive, of course, to produce more. Now, it sounds good, but of course, in reality, even as the state insists in one campaign after the other that no one farmer is allowed to cultivate the land on his own, that no families should cultivate the land. These campaigns take place in 79, in 18, 81, and 82. Nonetheless, what the people's communes do is take the contracts, give them to the villages, and the villages give them to individual households, with the result that by 1981, half of all the land in the number of provinces from Guizhou in the south to, to, to from, from Guangxi, Guizhou in the south up to Gansu in the north, over half of the land is cultivated by individual families. In effect, um, the farmers hollow out the people's communes, and these communes collapse against the wishes of the state, and Deng Xiaoping in particular, in 1982. So in, in effect, the farmers have pulled themselves out of poverty. That's the key point here to be made. It isn't Deng Xiaoping uh, who did it. It is the farmers who are the true architects of economic reform in the early 1980s. And they've not only undermined the people's communes, but they've doubled their own income. Now, what happens in 1984 in the cities? The cities are dominated by state enterprises. As I said, all means of production belong to the state. All enterprises are, by definition, state enterprises. John C. Young, number two in power, which is to take the contract system that appears all of a sudden to have worked quite well in the countryside, and he wishes to apply it to the state enterprises. So same principle, 1984, a state enterprise that manages to uh, to, to produce more uh, than it undertakes in its contract is allowed to retain the surplus and sell it on the market. It works very well. The economy along the coast in the cities uh, grows in double-digit numbers. But there are a number of side effects. One of them is that there is a, a rash for raw materials needed to produce. Village enterprises, but also state enterprises along the coast, want to have raw materials. So very gradually, villages, counties, entire provinces start erecting boundaries. They set up road checks, roadblocks, to make sure that nobody can come and poach their resources, but also to make sure that the farmers themselves cannot sell their own surplus to markets uh, outside of the region. In other words, China is transformed into a loose patchwork of independent fiefdoms 
not a unified domestic market. That, that is one of the consequences of that. Another consequence is that these local governments, uh, which are given much more clout in the 1980s, uh, begin making decisions about lending. Local branches of the centrally controlled banks uh, are allowed to lend more, and local party secretaries jump on the occasion with a spree for money. Those enormous uh, amounts are being lent up till 1989, with the result that there is double-digit inflation. And also the result that in 1988, the Bank of Agriculture that pays the farmers is in effect bankrupt. So this, these are um, some of the causes that contribute to an outpouring of discontent in 1989. Well, not just students who clamor for democracy and the separation of powers, but also ordinary people fed up with a system in which power can be traded for money. At all levels in this society, by 1989, people are fed up with a one-party state, with a monopoly over power. They want separation of powers, that people are accountable when they work in the government. This is 1989. You know what happened. Um, some 200 tanks and 100,000 soldiers used to crush the population in Beijing and, of course, also in cities elsewhere. So now it looks from 89 onwards, it looks as if China is going to revert back to its Maoist past. Deng Xiaoping breaks the deadlock in 1992. He comes up with an idea which will be very influential. Uh, he says, let's open special development zones and lease the land in exchange for capital. And then we use the capital to build up infrastructure. It seems like a very straightforward formula. In other words, get foreign investment by leasing them the land. He points out that this doesn't entail any risks because all the means of production, including the land and the banks, belong to the state. So he calls it capitalist tools and socialist hands. Capitalist tools are foreign investment. Socialist hands are the banks, the land, the labor, all of it in the hands of the state. So from there onwards, you see a massive influx of foreign investment with some 8,700 special development zones appear by the end of 1992. So that truly is the legacy of Deng Xiaoping, uh, the enormous amount of foreign investment that will continue to come in uh, from the 1990s onwards. And this is one of the reasons why land, leasing land in exchange for capital has become such a, a very sensitive point. But what you've got to bear in mind, you ask me about continuities, is that there are several continuities. First is, of course, the state's insistence on a monopoly over power. It demonstrates its will to keep power in 1989. Second, an insistence of the state, the party, uh, in maintaining uh, a monopoly over the means of production. The land never belongs to the farmers. Right? The banks are always controlled by Beijing. But also, thirdly, you got to remind, remind yourself of what I said about the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution is an attack by Mao on the party itself. So there's a strange sort of paradox. 
that the party structure has been undermined by the Cultural Revolution. And throughout the, the 1980s and 90s, Deng Xiaoping and his successor, Chiang Zemin, try to build it up again, but are also caught in a dilemma of their own making, namely that they grant local governments much greater power. So, so all the way from there onwards till, till now, really, there's this sort of tension between local governments and central government. So central government can come up with a, with a command, you know, decrease uh, pollution, but local governments might not listen to it. The central government, government might wish to control the amount of money that's being lent, but the local government might continue to lend to its own factories. That, that's the tension that stems from, from those decades that is with us to this very day. Okay, so now I, I think you made some some interesting points there about how the legacy of Deng Xiaoping really is this this opening up this economic liberalization, and this sort of brings us to the next chapter, um, or, or one of the next chapters in your book called Big and Beautiful, which covers the period starting from 1997, which which really is the inflection point in China's economic growth. Um, if you look at say a, a graph of um, China's GDP, so in just ten years, starting from 1997 to 2007, China's economy grows. 350 to, to almost 400% in, in size, going from a, a brutally poor backwater to, to a major force on the international front. So just, just for comparison, um, during the same period, the, the American economy grew by just 68%. So can you tell us a bit about the, the shifting port forces during this period that, that turbocharged China's economic progress from, say, 1997 onwards to the financial crisis? Well, yes, but you you refer to Deng Xiaoping as as the one who started economic liberalization. It's a misnomer. He did not. It's the farmers, the villagers, who started uh, economic liberalization. And secondly, it's not liberalization in the sense that Deng Xiaoping is committed to control over the means of production, including the banks, the land, capital, labor. So that's hardly liberalization. Uh, what he does is move away from a very rigid command economy. But this is not a free market. This is not a liberal market. This is not a market economy. This is a market controlled by the state. Um, so I wouldn't call it liberalization. Now, the key inflection point is not 1997. It's uh, 2001. What happens in 2001? Well, it's the WTO. 1997 is something quite different. Jiang Zemin realizes um, that there are literally just millions of small state enterprises all contribute to overcapacity, surplus. Financial crisis, 96, 97, 98, 99, roughly. It looks as if China is a real rock of stability, you know, in Thailand, the Bart's collapses, the difficulties elsewhere. China looks from a distance to be very solid, but overcapacity is enormous. So what he tries to do is merge a great number of them into giant corporations. He calls them national champions, huge conglomerates, for instance, China Telecom. And then with the help of foreign money makers and corporate lawyers, he actually lists these entities abroad to obviously attract more foreign investment. So this is the beginning of initial public offerings of huge conglomerates like uh, Huawei, you may have heard of it, and China Telecom, not just in Hong Kong, but also in New York. So this is a key turning point. But the real one is the WTO. Uh, when on the one hand, 
China makes pledges and promises about more transparency in governance, about opening up its markets, about uh, a greater um, portion of the economy being uh, given to the private sector, about the rule of law. And on the other hand, a number of foreign countries, including the United States, but not only the United States, are so convinced that if China joins the WTO, it will become a responsible stakeholder. Now that leads, that conviction leads the WTO to allow China to join without making its exchange rate convertible, without opening up its capital account, and without reforming its state enterprises, which as a result of what Chiang Zemin did in 1997, namely merge them into giant collectives, uh, giant conglomerates, actually more powerful than ever before. So the result is that when a state has the means of production, when it can lend the land to enterprises, whether they are private or, or, or state-owned, when it can lend the land next to nothing, lease the land next for next to nothing, when it can come up with raw resources for next to nothing, when it can make loans through its own state-controlled banks for next to nothing, when it can, in other words, subsidize uh, an enterprise at every level and control the exchange rate, it means that very few countries are actually able to compete, with the result that even Bangladesh is unable to compete with China in the production of garments, or the, uh, if you wish, the um, the trade relationship with the WTO after 2001 changes drastically. The trade deficit increases tenfold, not just with the United States, but also countries like uh, Mexico and others. Um, by 2005, the leadership is so convinced that it is doing well that states, the, the reform of state enterprises is put on ice and reform of the financial system is postponed forever. In effect, the leadership becomes more convinced of the fact that socialism is the right path to follow than ever before. There's okay. more convinced ever before that control over the means of production is the way forward. Dr. Dr. Dakota, um, very much very much enjoying enjoying the story there's so much here but unfortunately um we are we are at the, the time limit for for this podcast so i i did want to say thank you so much for joining us on the show um really really enjoyed learning about all all of um you know your your knowledge of modern chinese history and i'm sure our audience will get so much out of this thank you thank you everyone for listening to the economics review and as always we'll be back soon with the latest <laughs>